This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good morning, Andrew Austin here, and welcome to my show, Austin On Air, right here on Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay. I'm doing the show away from the studio today, and my guest is also on the line. He's Dr. Rory Hill, who is program coordinator and lecturer at EIT's School of Viticulture and Wine Science. Kia ora, Rory, and welcome to the show. Kia ora, Andrew. You're very welcome. Yeah, good to speak to you, Rory. Um, um, we are live at the moment, so glad, glad to have you on the show with me. Um, you're the program coordinator of a new Masters in uh, Wine Business and Innovation. Tell us about this new program and why it has been added to ERT's postgraduate offering. Sure, sure. Well, um, as you and, and your listeners may know, EIT has had a School of Viticulture and Wine Science for many years. And we have qualifications um, that include a degree in viticulture and wine science. Um, we have graduate diplomas in viticulture and in enology. And we have um, uh, smaller courses um, for school leaders and people without a degree in things like wine cellar operations and uh, viticulture itself. So what we wanted to add to that offering um, was a wine business, a set of wine business courses. And this was in response to calls from within the New Zealand wine industry for uh, graduates who can demonstrate critical understanding of diverse industry issues through a commercial lens. Because um, it, it is quite different from the straightforward wine science degree because this is actually, and I think you are working with the, the School of Business as well on this because um, there is quite a large um, business component to this, uh, this uh, degree, this postgraduate degree. Absolutely, absolutely. So we've got courses. I mean, just, just before I say what courses we have, um, you know, the wine industry is a growing one worldwide, um, yeah. in the Hawke's Bay, elsewhere in New Zealand, and in other countries in the world. But alongside that, wine education is also a growing area. So there's more and more interest and there's more and more new programs being set up in wine business areas in places like California, Australia, Germany, France, and so on. So New Zealand uh, hasn't had this provision yet. And so the kind of courses we're doing on our wine business programs at EIT include global wine marketing, sustainability in the wine industry, entrepreneurship in wine business, technology and innovation in the wine industry, things like that. And then um, part of the value of the programs, as I see it, is that, as you say, we've got courses from the School of Business um, that our students can also take in things like financial management, leadership, and digital marketing. That's amazing. Um, now, Rory, you're fairly new to um, EIT. When I say fairly new, you've probably been there about a, a year or so. Um, yes. And you were brought in to run the uh, post-grad programs. How are you finding EIT and, and the new sort of uh, offering that you've got? Well, I love it. Um, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners will have moved to the Hawke's Bay for lifestyle reasons great quality of life here. Certainly, if we move somewhere else, we'll always miss the lack of traffic here in the Hawke's Bay, uh, which is amazing for the amount of time you save every day. Um, but in the School of Viticulture and Wine Science at EIT, I've really been bowled over by um, the dedication of my colleagues, 
to the students, how much time they spend with them, and the wealth of knowledge that those colleagues have. So I'm, I'm, you know, fairly young within academia. I'm in my 30s, but the people we have have had decades of experience as winemakers, as viticulturalists, and I think our students can only benefit from that. Because um, EIT's um, School of um, Wine Science and Viticulture has always had uh, a good reputation, but um, there seems to be a crop of young researchers coming through um, in the, over the last few years. So does, do you sort of like thrive off each other and is that, does that stimulate more sort of research and, and that uh, amongst you? We do, we do. And we have a little um, school research committee which meets every month and where we can discuss the research we're doing, talk about our planned research and support and encourage each other. And I think, I think that's a key part of um, the academic endeavour. I think if you're doing research, if you're doing scholarly work, you need to have peers and colleagues who you can bounce ideas off and, you know, informally review each other's work and, and encourage each other. And, Andrew, there's a lot of exciting research being done in EIT's School of Viticulture. Um, my colleagues, you know, too many to mention perhaps in this short part, but they're doing exciting work on wine sensory science, on um, developments in the vineyard, testing soils, testing grapes, testing cover crops, testing irrigation regimes, lots of things that are of use and value to Hawke's Bay wine wine industry and the wine industry more widely. Now, you're originally from Britain. Tell us where you grew up and how you first became interested in wine. Sure. Well, yes, I'm from uh, Jersey in the Channel Islands. Uh, which does have one vineyard, uh, but is not famous for its wine. But my uncle Roy uh, lives in Burgundy, and um, I used to go and see him every summer. And really, it was uh, him that transmitted the passion for wine uh, to me. And certainly, um, Burgundy-style wines remain my favorite to this day. Um, My academic background is actually in geography. And, you know, geography is an incredibly wide discipline and people can study all kinds of things from you know rivers to religion it's all included in in geography and so gradually my interest in human geography moved towards um, uh, wine and the concept of terroir uh, which is sort of that sense of place um, that uniqueness in a place that gives the wine or other things that are grown there um, their special characteristics Um, And then uh, I did some work on all that sort of thing in in France and Europe, and uh, then Lincoln University down in the South Island offered me a job to come and do some research on North Canterbury's wine industry, which we could call an emerging wine industry, and more widely on wine provision in the South Island. Okay, well, we'll get on to that. You've taken about six of my questions there that I've just asked you, but that's all good. Um, So um, what is your highest qualification? I mean, obviously, you you Dr. Rory Hill, so we know the answer to that. And Mm -hmm. where and when did you you get it? Yeah, so um, I did the Doctor of Philosophy, the DPhil, at uh, Oxford University, started there in 2011, and finished in 2016, and that included um, a year or so of fieldwork in France where I went and interviewed wine producers and also other uh, farmers, but mostly wine producers, about what the concept of terroir means to them, um, about how they work with it day to day, and 
how it interacts with uh, moves towards sustainable agriculture, which we're seeing, you know, in, in many places around the world. And that, and that was a fascinating piece of research for me and allowed me to um, integrate myself in, into the wine industry. Although I should say, um, you know, the times they invited me around to help pick grapes and stuff, I was probably more of a hindrance than a help because the other people were there trying to pick grapes and do it quickly, and I was slowing them all down by asking them questions and saying, oh, isn't this interesting? And <laughs> tell me more about terroir and, and so on. But it was a very enjoyable um, experience. Because um, you mentioned this word terroir, which you say is a sense of place. And now going back uh, years and that, that was quite a strict sort of term relating to soil and everything like that. Um, but now, as you say, it's changing uh, towards uh, sort of environmental sustainability and that, and especially in, in France as well. How has that change happened over the years? Well, I mean, that's that's a big question, and, and you know, I've answered it in a very long and, and probably boring thesis, which is gathering dust on a, on a library <laughs> shelf somewhere. Um, but essentially, the concept of terroir began in medieval Burgundy, where you had Cistercian and, and other monks who uh, required wine for a number of reasons. So they required wine for uh, the Holy Communion. They required wine for their duty of hospitality. So when people would come and stay with them, they, they wanted to be able to offer them some wine. And as time went by, they, they used wine as well for a little bit of commercial gain, you know, to um, sell the wine and, and help to fund, you know, the, the running of the monastery and so on. And as they were doing that, as they were planting grapevines and um, bringing in a harvest year after year, they got to know which areas of Burgundy um, produced the best wine sort of reliably year in, year out. Um, and that's where the concept of terroir was born. Um, it was that kind of territorial difference, territorial value. And as the years went by and winemaking moved out of uh, monks' hands and into um, wine producers' hands, um, uh, my argument is that terroir became really territories in, in wider relation where people who were interested in wine and knew about wine appreciated and paid for wine elsewhere outside of Burgundy in the growing towns of Europe in Paris, London, Amsterdam and so on, they got to know those territories. They got to know those parcels of vineyard, those vineyard blocks that produced the best wine and they asked for them and they set out to, to buy them and, and share the knowledge of them. So terroir really became important when other people knew about that piece of land. It wasn't just the person working with the land, it was the person hundreds or thousands of kilometers away who was drinking the product of that land and appreciating its qualities. And I'm going to put some of this down in a book um, that I'm working on at the moment called The Storied Soil, um, which is about how that journey is made from a particular piece of land through to an end consumer. Yeah, that's, that's quite amazing. And obviously there are some there is some significance for any area, even, especially Hawke's Bay as well. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And, you know, in, to your question about sustainability, um, and, and just to carry that on a little bit, so um, in the early 20th century, well, late 19th, early 20th century, um, a lot of those terroirs, a lot of those territories in France were... They had boundaries drawn around them, and you had a system of appellation d'origine, or uh, geographical indications, where you would say, this area makes this kind of wine, this area makes that kind of wine, and so on. 
And often the evidence that was used to justify that protection was geological evidence or simply um, evidence of uh, the presence of that named wine through time, through history in books and in commercial registers and receipts of sale and, and so on. And there was a problem um, post-Second World War where you had um, a lot of um, thinking in, in agriculture more widely about the, the widespread use of chemicals and so on. There was a problem that, that some people saw, which was if you had inherited a terroir that was kind of famous and which supposedly had a geological basis, let's say, that meant that the soil was great for grapes and that's why you had a great wine, um, if you managed that land badly or you managed that land using a lot of chemicals and perhaps you were impoverishing the biological life of the soil over years and over decades, some people would ask, how is that soil still producing a great wine when you've changed the nature of it anyway? And so that's where people started to question, well, maybe terroir should also be about the life in the soil and the life in the vineyard and, yeah. uh, you know, from, from the microbiome right up through um, to insects, birds and, and other things you'll find in the vineyard. And actually, in front of me at the moment, I'm looking at a paper that's just been published today by Alex Gobby and his colleagues. And it's, he's done a global, they've done a global microbiome survey of vineyard soils, which highlight the microbial dimension of terroirs. So they're really looking at the fungi and the bacteria, the microscopic life in the soil, and how that varies across the wine regions of the world, and how that actually may have a role to play in um, establishing how terroirs are different. And that gives us the incentive to um, be kinder to the environment in the methods we use in the vineyard. And how does um, this concept relate to food as well? Because it's not just wine, there's also an aspect of, of food as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we can, we can look at um, flavor profiles of um, food crops that are grown in different parts of the world and how they vary. But on top of that, there's also a really important cultural layer, you know, and how is food prepared in different places? Why is it that, um, you know, things we taste in another country taste the way they do? What are the cultural, the traditional, the historical, ultimately the human interactions that have led that food to taste the way that it does? Now, you mentioned earlier um, that you were at Lincoln um, on the South Island. Um, so how did you come over? Did you apply for a role down there? How did you eventually come to New Zealand? Yeah, well, I, it was a couple of years ago, so I, I forget the precise details, but I remember that I was in Germany and um, someone said to me, oh, there's a uh, position at Lincoln University in New Zealand, which I'd heard of but didn't know a lot about. And I looked into it. And it was, they were looking for someone uh, to do what we call uh, postdoctoral research, so research after you finished your PhD. And it was on um, uh, the North Canterbury region, which is and, and has been trying to make more of a name for itself um, because it received its geographical indication from the New Zealand government in, uh, I think it was finally signed off in 2020, but they'd been in the process of, of applying for that and putting together the evidence for that for a few years and trying to make a name for North Canterbury wine so that it could be so it can stand up and be recognized alongside wines from places like Central Otago, Marlborough, Bay, and so on. And uh, so I, I, I made my application and um, I was invited to interview 
over Skype, and uh, it became you know, the time difference between New Zealand and Europe became very real because I think the Skype was at about five in the morning. But I said that's no problem. And um, in that interview, there were four people from Lincoln University, including uh, the lady who became my, my boss and my colleague, uh, Dr. Joe Fountain, down there. And um, we had it. We had a great interview. We had a long chat about uh, many things wine-related, and uh, I knew that I had a lot to learn about New Zealand. And when I came out here, um, I was very grateful to Joe as well because on well, uh, on top of um, all the academic work we did together, in the first few days she took me on a bit of a cultural immersion. So we went to visit um, a lot of the wineries in North Canterbury, say hello, you know, be introduced, taste some of the wine. And she also took the opportunity to play me uh, on, on the drive a lot of, Australian and Kiwi music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. <laughs> I have a bit of cultural background, and I discovered a lot of music on that drive that I still enjoy listening to today. Oh, that's good. Well, we'll, we'll get on to the research that you, you started there, and, which has just recently been published, but just quickly tell us how you um, ended up at EIT. So the position at Lincoln um, was uh, a time-limited position. I think it was for 18 months or something like that. And uh, COVID uh, uh, reared its ugly head uh, during that, and that affected some of the research we could do. Um, and at the end of that 18-month contract, um, Lincoln University and the higher education sector in Australia and New Zealand more widely were in quite a different position from when I started. That is to say, um, almost all international students could no longer come. Um, things were difficult financially and so on. And uh, unfortunately, there wasn't an opportunity to extend uh, that contract to Lincoln at that time. But serendipitously, um, I heard uh, about a position uh, coming up at EIT, which was this new uh, position of lecturer in, in wine business and innovation. So those new programs that I was, I was talking about earlier and um, I was encouraged to apply, and I did, and, and I had an interview um, with Sue Blackmore, our head of school, and some other colleagues, uh, and yeah, that seemed to go well, and they offered me the job, and I just thought, well, this is, this is the universe telling me this is the next step. Uh, you know, it's not possible to stay at Lincoln, and we completed the work we did there, and we enjoyed it, and so this is a, a great new challenge. Um, new students, new courses, um, and I'll be able to start some new research hopefully soon as well. And you brought your family over with you, huh? Uh Well, yes and no. Um, I come from a big family, and my brother um, beat me to New Zealand. He, he's been down in Queenstown for a few years, and he loves it down there, so it's great that I'm able to see him. Um, but I did, um, my fiancé um, did come and join me, so we had a distance relationship and uh, while I was in Europe and she was in America. And then uh, when I was offered the job in New Zealand, I thought, well, I have to go and uh, try, to <laughs> try to persuade her that she should come with me to New Zealand, you know, and that there's a lot of opportunity here. So I went to see her and her family in Seattle and talk to them about it, and they all seemed very keen. So I was very happy about that. And a couple of months later, she came and joined me. And she's in the wine industry too. And while she was here in, in New Zealand, um, I think she had something of an epiphany, and, and that was connected to the people she'd met who were teaching her, mentoring her, 
and um, uh, who she was working with in the industry, and she she's decided that she wants to become a winemaker. And so she, she's pursuing that um, with a lot of enthusiasm, and she's working for Villa Maria now. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so now t- we've got about seven minutes left or so. Um, <laughs> just uh, recently you had some research published on uh, the the um, work that you did in North Canterbury about local wines on restaurant uh, menus. Uh, yes. Tell us a bit about that um, that research. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to say that um, uh, just a few days ago, uh, a paper was published on this, um, which I wrote with my colleague Joe Fountain down at Lincoln, and that's in the International Journal of Wine Business Research. And what the research is based on was... Um, an in-depth menu analysis that we did uh, of all the restaurants we could find down in Queenstown and also in Christchurch, followed up by a set of in-depth interviews uh, with restaurateurs, sommeliers, food and beverage managers, and so on, on those premises. And what we were trying to find out was how, how well are restaurants supporting local wines in their wine offering? Now, Andrew, very little research has been done on wine menus. Um, it's something, there are things that um, I'm sure we've all seen when we've dined out in restaurants, pubs, and, and so on. But there's very little research out there about how those menus are put together and what, are the, what is the decision-making that lies behind them. And so we wanted to ask, given that Christchurch sits within the North Canterbury wine region, which is emerging, as, as, I, as I was saying, and given that Queenstown sits within the central Otago wine region, which you could say is emerging, but also has a lot of uh, plaudits and has had a lot of success, especially with its Pinot Noir wines. We wanted to see how well are local wines represented in those two cases. And the findings are quite interesting because it turns out that the Queenstown restaurants have twice as many local wines on their wine menus as the Christchurch restaurants do. Is that purely because of it being more of a tourist spot, or, or what would you say uh, the reason for So, that? yes, tourism is a, is a big part of it, um, we discovered. So <clears throat> Christchurch and Queenstown have, sim- pre-COVID, they had similar numbers of tourists each year passing through. The big difference is that Queenstown's tourists were much more international, whereas Christchurch had a lot more domestic tourists. And we feel that the heavy concentration of international tourists in Queenstown has driven restaurateurs to offer more local wines because it fits within a sense of discovery and it fits within a wine tourism experience that a lot of those tourists will already be having, such as when they go to visit wineries in central Otago and so on. So we think there's perhaps um, more that can be done in Christchurch both by restaurateurs in, in offering local wines and giving visitors the opportunity to try local wines, um, but more widely in the region, perhaps to um, uh, link up the wine uh, tourism infrastructure um, a little bit more and to encourage more people to come to the region to try the wine specifically. Okay, now moving back to Hawke's Bay wines, um, how have you found Hawke's Bay wines and what are your favourites? <laughs> Ah, well, it's excellent. I mean, that's that's the main thing to say. The quality of wine in New Zealand more generally is just high across the board. I think there's a high level of technical excellence in winemaking here. And I think people have been careful to, and well, careful is perhaps the wrong word. 
people have experimented with which grapevines do well in which areas. And that is something that changes over the decades. If you look at tables of which wine grapes are grown in which regions, you'll see that that has changed over time. You'll see 40 years ago a lot of Muller Turgau. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a wine you remember, Andrew. I think I may have drunk that as a kid, kind of, uh, <laughs> when I shouldn't have. But um, that was a big wine in, in the 80s. But now we have a lot more different varieties. Um, and I think Hawke's Bay really um, speaks to that diversity itself. Um, obviously, you've got Syrah here in what people will often call a Northern Rhone style, if they're comparing it to the Old World. You've got excellent Chardonnay. You've got beautiful, vibrant Bordeaux blends um, and many other wines. And um, there, are, there are so many, you know, I don't want to pick out favorites. I will say I do enjoy the wines from Delaterre on the Thai Happy Road, and I think they are a bit of a microcosm of that diversity because they have so many wine styles and they do them really well. And, um, you know, I'm sure you get this asked this all the time, but what, what should we be looking for um, in a wine? In, in a Hawke's Bay wine or in wine or in just general? Any, just the, the basic principles to um, working out what is a good wine, whatever that varietal that is. Mm. Well... You know, wine is, is, is uh, a subjective good, right? Our appreciation of it is subjective, and, you know, no two people will necessarily like the same things in wine. So I think the first thing to say is, like, there's no wrong answer in terms of what is your favorite wine. You know, there's no, like, good variety and bad variety. All wines can be made well. Unfortunately, wines can sometimes be made badly or they can go bad um, in the bottle. But I think whatever you're into... Uh, is a perfectly valid choice. And I think wine, the wine world is so rich and full of um, diversity, full of different stories, full of personalities, full of interesting places, that people tend to go on a journey over the length of their lives. Like They might get into wine as a student or um, at some stage in their life, and their tastes themselves may change over time as they discover different wines and discover things that they like. So instead of saying to you, what makes a good wine or a bad wine, I would invite you and I would invite listeners to, to go and to, to continue on that journey, trying different wines. If you're in the restaurant context, take a wine by the glass, have a sample, see what you think, and try different wines from different regions and see what interests you and see what makes you happy. Dr. Rory Hill, um, Program Coordinator and Lecturer at EIT School of Viticulture and Wine Science. Thank you so much for joining me on Austin on the Air today. That's a pleasure. It's good to talk yeah. to you again. Thank you, you too. And to you, the listener, I look forward to you joining me next time on Radio Kidnappers. Goodbye. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.